You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Group, global leaders in aerospace, developing Japan's first homegrown commercial jet and the country's next generation launch vehicle. On October 7th, the Washington Post Live traveled to New York City to learn how advances in technology, efficiency, and design are reshaping the future of aviation in the air and on the ground. Supersonic travel and on-demand urban aviation may significantly alter the way we travel in the near future. In this segment, we'll hear from leaders on the cutting edge of these breakthroughs. Let's listen. Now we're here to talk a little more about what we just saw. I'm joined by two men who are pioneering, who may be pioneering um, completely new ways to get us from here to there. Um, Eric Ellison is the head of Uber Elevate, and Blake Scholl is the CEO of Boom Supersonic. Um, and just as you have before, I know you'll have lots of questions. So for those here in the audience and those watching online, be sure to tweet your questions using the hashtag PostLive. So Blake, so Supersonic seems to be having a real moment right now. Um, it's part of the Trump administration's um, agenda. The FAA is 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 looking at new rulemaking, and NASA is working on developing an aircraft. I know there are others out there too. What's fueling the comeback after it went away in 2003? Um, it's a really funny thing uh, to have a technology and then lose it and actually go backwards to a capability that we had 50 years ago. And we, we've had that with supersonic aircraft. We've had that with uh, moon rockets, and really those are the only two places. But where we, what we're finding now is we're finally at the intersection of what's practical technologically and what's uh, economical for airlines and for the flying public. So we finally today have the technology to do supersonic flight in a way that tens of millions of people can afford to fly. So not like Concorde where we only had a, you know, a dozen aircraft but something that's hundreds of aircraft and tens of millions of passengers per year and can really change the way we get around the planet. And that's something that really everyone can get excited about. Mm -hmm. Great. And so it sounds like there's a financial, because part of the problem was financially, it just didn't make a lot of sense. It was only an option for, for the very wealthy. Um, there were also safety concerns. So w what about the finances is going to make it work this time? Well, Concorde was just too expensive. It was a $20,000 ticket which is not daily transportation for very many people, and it's you know an expensive bucket list item. Uh, but fast forward literally half a century. I mean, we have to remember Concorde was designed in the 1960s with slide rules and wind tunnels and drafting paper. And today we have more efficient engines, we have new materials, we have advanced design techniques, and so you can get the cost down to the point that a lot more people can afford to fly high speed. So we're starting out targeting uh, about $2,500 a ticket. And uh, with time, that'll come down. And our ultimate goal is to make the fastest flight the cheapest one. There you go. Um, so Eric, you guys are, you, you have Rideshare. I know that you just launched helicopters here in New York. Um, tell us a little bit about why Uber's decided to take on this challenge of, of, of vertiports and moving people in a new way, aerial ride sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us here today. Um, so at Uber, we, we really, um, we think really hard about what the future of transportation looks like. And uh, over the past few years, we've 
we really started to, to focus on building this transportation platform that can weave together all different types of transportation that can uh, you know, help you not to have to have a car. And so as we think toward the future, as we think about the big, bold bets that we want to take um, as, we, as we become, as Dara said recently, the operating system for cities, um, we're thinking about these new forms of transportation, new forms of movement that we can bring into the platform. And one of the ones that, um, that unfortunately has not existed for many years, it didn't exist and, and then went away like Supersonic did, but uh, is, is being able to move around a city um, in the third dimension, to move from point A to point B um, more directly and, and go through the air and kind of skip the gridlock and uh, kind of the, the constraints of the kind of not even two-dimensional, more like one-dimensional uh, grid that we move around every day. And so by taking the power of the technology that we've built to be able, be able to move um, people around kind of in on-demand cars, and then connect that into uh, a new type of aircraft that are quieter and safer and much more economical to operate, made possible by electric propulsion, we think we can bring this new form of transportation to life and, and weave it into this platform that we're building. So now I know Uber in the past with a lot of the innovations it's tried to bring to the transportation world has run into regulatory issues. Yeah. In some cases, they decided just to launch without really dealing. So what are the regulatory hurdles that you face here? You know, they're talking about having drone delivery. You know, there's going to be a lot of stuff potentially flying through the sky. So how do you deal with the regulatory issues? And is that something you're going to deal with up front? Or how is that going to work? Yeah, so regulation, I mean, aviation is one of the most highly regulated industries there is. And so we have made a, a fundamental choice to, to kind of partner with regulators from day zero, I like to say, that we are building relationships with the regulators at the national level, um, at the different national regulators where, where we're going to be operating, and, uh, and as well as at the state and local level. Uh, it's because we know that in this new form of, of urban aviation, it matters not just, but it's incredibly important, the national level regulation, because the FAA in the U.S. is the primary regulator of aviation, but also the state and local regulators matter a lot, too, because of the, the nature of being able to move around cities um, in this new way. And so we've made that a really important part of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. What hurdles do you think you're going to face? So there's, in, in bringing to life a, a, whole new, a whole new form of, uh, of movement in this way, we know that you have to build out a, an entire basically all the pieces of this. And so that's why we've emphasized partnership on aircraft, electric aircraft, with a number of, of major industry partners that are now working on this new type of aircraft. We're making partnerships on the real estate side. We're investing internally on the, the tech to, to do a lot of the air traffic management um, that is really necessary, building on the concepts that are coming out of NASA and the FAA's work around UTM. And then we're also investing, um, what we're learning with Ubercopter is about uh, the operational side of this too. How do you do aerial ride sharing in a way that actually does this seamless multimodal journey? Um, and, and when I say multimodal, I mean really multimodal where you have a single button press and you get multiple modes that we're sequencing behind the scenes and seamlessly connecting you from a car to a, a helicopter to a car and doing that over and over and over again and making this really magical experience for our users. So do you see this replacing helicopters and this becoming the preferred mode, or do you see room for both? So I do think that in the, in the, air, taxi, uh, in the air taxi regime 
that that we'll see as the electric VTOL aircraft, that's what we like to call them because we're engineers mostly, um, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. No one's come up with a better name yet, unfortunately. But um, what we like to, what I what I think is that in this in this uh, with these types of aircraft, as bec they become certified and become commercially available, they will be the the dominant form of this in in this air taxi market because they'll be quieter and they'll be cheaper to operate than helicopters. I think that in other industries where um, the, the kind of the, the, the fundamental physics of helicopters is really um, beneficial, hovering, things like that, uh, we'll still see helicopters be pretty dominant. So you're talking about a potential launch in Los Angeles and Dallas in 2023? That's right, and yeah. But potentially a broader launch 2030 is that so we see it as kind of rolling so so we, okay. we 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 want to start in a measured way so we've focused on these initial launch cities where we've had good stakeholder engagement um, so far and we're continuing to talk to people all over the world though about this um, but we're, we're focusing on these initial set of launch cities and we think that everywhere that we have a business um, that a ground business um, that's that's large that this will be another uh, a value add that we can bring into these new markets um, I mean, we're in uh, over 700 cities, I think so over 65 countries around the world right now, something like 15 billion trips to date that we've done. So the scale of the Uber existing business is immense, and we want to bring aerial ride sharing into that context of this almost unimaginably large, uh, large scale of, of operation that we have right now. Good. And Blake, we want to bring you back into this too. And I know one of the big problems with Supersonic in the past has been the boom. Right, you're limited in your operations in that you can only operate over water. Um, tell us how you're gonna, how that's gonna change, if that's gonna change. Well, I think over time we're gonna find that there is unrestricted high-speed flight everywhere. And uh, something we think about is, well, where do you get started? And it turns out today there are over 500 routes on the planet where you can fly supersonic over water, subsonic over land, and give the passengers a great speed up. So not just New York to London, like Concord, but Seattle to Shanghai and San Francisco to Tokyo and LA to Sydney. There are 500 routes where you can fly 90% over water, give passengers a big speed up, and the sonic boom is just not even a question because no one's there to hear it. Uh, that said, I think that we'll find over time that when uh, a large portion of the population, when a lot of people can afford to fly supersonic, that puts you know, the, the noise in context and we're gonna find that we have got quieter aircraft that are gonna be perfectly acceptable to the, the public for supersonic everywhere. See, that's interesting. I, I cover aviation and I know that people aren't, there are a lot of people around the country that aren't pleased with the aviation system we have now and the noise that it produces. Mm -hmm. I understand that there's talk about making that sonic boom technology to make that sonic boom as quiet as a door slamming, a car door yeah, slamming? Yeah, you can definitely make it quieter. And uh, you know, the way I think about this is you want to make it such that it, you know, it fits into our background environment that we have today. It doesn't have to be inaudible because you know, we've got trucks and trains and police cars and all kinds of things that are part of our environment today, and we recognize that it's better than not having them. And you know, I think aircraft are much the same way. When there is a broad benefit to the public, that puts you know that puts the sound in context, and you have to make it quiet enough that it's non-disruptive, that it's it's something that doesn't bother you as you go about your daily business. And uh, and that's you know that's where we're going to be going over the long term. So the hope is that there's a groundswell of people who embrace the technology, and that is a counter against those that might not like the noise or the. I think you, you make it quiet enough that, that, that people want to be able to fly San Francisco to Washington, D.C. in two hours instead of six. 
and uh, and that the, the noise is just not a it's not a material downside. Now I think it's going to take time to get there, and we're not we're not going there in one one iteration. That's why we very deliberately said we're going to start out focusing on routes that are mostly over water. That's where the flights are longest today, and there's the biggest benefit from having a speed up. So you start there, you get everyone really excited about the the future of high speed flights and what that does for making the planet more accessible. And then over time you iterate to make them quieter and quieter. And at some point those two things cross where it's quiet enough and exciting enough that it, it makes sense. And what kind of timeline are you looking at? Well, we want to do this as quickly as possible. And so we're aiming to take our first passengers in the mid to late 2020s. And those will be that'll be the transoceanic routes. And what happens with supersonic everywhere is uh, you know, above my pay grade to be able to predict. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, we have a question for you um, from Twitter. Thank you all. Um, so Uber's lost a lot of money this year. Um, five billion in the second quarter of 2019. So what's the business model for Uber Elevate that's gonna make it work, gonna make it profitable? Yeah, so we believe that you, know, you have to kind of in invest in future things because if you don't invent the future, someone else will. And so we, we continue to make big bold bets across different parts of our, our business um, because we're, we're, we think that this is a, we're just scratching the surface of what is ultimately an incredibly immense market um, all over the world. <coughs> and so uh, we're going to continue to do that. So you're going to you're willing to take the losses that you're gambling on the losses that you're going to be profitable. So so the um, so for Elevate, I mean we're we know that you know we have to we have to in invest now if we want to make this possible in the mm -hmm. future. And so we're continuing to do that. And it's you know we're doing um, uh, research and development to to make this possible. But we think that we have a a, a good time frame. We think that the economics of Elevate work out. Um, we have a lot of models that we've built around this mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that this makes sense to do and that we can bring this to the world in a, in a pretty rapid time frame. So we saw the picture. So tell us how the model will work. I know that you, you all are initially talking about $5 a mile. Are we talking short hops? What, what, how is yeah. it going to, how is a typical trip going to work at so least in the first So yeah, year? so we've built a bunch of, um, we have a lot of movement data about how people, how people like to move about cities um, and uh, urban and semi-urban areas. We take our own data, we supplement it with third-party data, and so we understand where there's pockets of demand um, for movement generally kind of overall. Uh, in in a in an urban or semi-urban area, and so what we do is we look at um, kind of where the best spots are to place skyports. We call them. So these are the nodes that you take off and land from. We don't think that in the in any um, any reasonable time frame you'll be taking off and landing from your own backyard because um, just we don't think it's really feasible. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we think that you're gonna have to have places, um, skyports to take off and land from. But the nice thing is if you have a network of cars that you can weave together, you can get people from where, they wanna, where they're starting from to these skyports in an efficient way. And so we wanna place the skyports um, in, in conjunction with our real estate partners in a very efficient way. So when you, uh, you open the Uber app, you'll see an, a, an option just like you see uh, Uber Black or Uber X right now, it'll be Uber Air. And when you select that, it'll be this true multimodal journey that, that gets you um, with a, gives you a, a car to get you the first mile um, to the Skyport. You'll then seamlessly be transferred onto the aircraft along with th uh, two to three other people um, who are um, basically being real-time uh, batched into those aircraft. We see it as a shared product because that's a way to get um, the cost to be something accessible for, for many more people. 
And so, um, and then you'll fly to the remote Skyport, and the same thing will happen, but in reverse. And so there'll be cars that are dispatched just in time, so that you'll you'll you know s have the car waiting for you, um, or getting there just as you just as you land and get out of the the aircraft, and it will take you to your final destination. So, so this is just exactly what we're doing with Copter right now, right. actually, just in a very limited way. So yeah. I was going to ask, what lessons have you learned? I know you haven't been up and running, but what lessons have yeah. you learned about the logistics from Uber Copter? Now that it's up. Yeah, well, we, one of the things we've learned is that doing true multimodal seamlessly is really hard. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. actually like a really big challenge and that we have to build the tech now to make this possible. And little things that, uh, that, that don't matter in the context of a single trip, when you start to, to link the modes together, start to matter more and more. And so um, we're really focused on identifying those and, and working them out and, and making sure we build the tech and the operational flows kind of behind the scenes to make this as seamless as possible and then doing it over and over again every day. Great, and that was a question, thank you, Brian, from Twitter. So that was from Brian on Twitter. We have Steve now on Twitter with another question. We'll get you back in, Blake, I promise. With another question, you we just talked about noise issues surrounding supersonic flights. Um, Uber Elevate. What kind of what what are we going to see here? Are there going to be noise? You know, helicopters aren't exactly yep. soft. So so we we yeah, it's an excellent question. And as you were talking about, I mean, it's a lot of the same the same um, ideas. We think that noise is an incredibly important aspect of this. And so uh, a couple of things we're doing. We're, we've actually have a small team um, that works on um, working with our partners to kind of um, help them to, uh, to, to, to apply kind of the latest and, and greatest in terms of analysis, techni analysis techniques to, uh, to predict noise um, as they're designing their vehicles. And because we think that it's, it's, it's achievable using distributed electric propulsion, which is the key vehicle level technology that makes this whole thing work to um, have essentially about a 15 dB uh, reduction in noise on takeoff and landing from a typical equivalent size and weight helicopter. So that's a, a super important piece. The other thing is that with distributed electric propulsion, you actually take off and land vertically, but then you convert to wingborne flight for the, for the overflight phase. And so you in, in that phase, it's basically silent. I mean, you don't really hear these, uh, these aircraft if they're designed right. And so it is um, an incredibly important part of this because you have a very different noise exposure window then. So you have reduced noise and takeoff and landing, almost no, no noise and overflight, and then the third thing we're doing is we're actually mapping background noise. So right now in Dallas, and I think we're about to start doing this in LA as well, we actually are, are doing a kind of a, a design of experiments-based sampling of background noise, and we put it into a machine learning model we've built to be able to predict on an hour-by-hour -hour basis background noise of the entire Dallas metro area, which is really interesting because then we can take that background noise map put it into our system level simulation and actually design routes um, and skyport locations that take into account not only demand that's underlying, but also noise that's underlying. And so you can imagine you can shift around skyport locations a little bit and maybe take a, a small penalty on the length of routes in order to take a, a big benefit or, or, or take advantage of a big benefit in terms of overflying or placing skyports in high background noise locations. Because we know that people's noise sensitivity is largely relative. If you're in a high background noise location, you're not as sensitive to noise as if you're in a quiet rural location where the background noise is basically imperceptible. So we think it's incredibly important to be smart right out of the gate on this and really, really understand what it is we're doing. Good. Um, Blake, what kind of um, regulatory hurdles is supersonic travel going to have to to conquer before we can see we can see it start again? That's one of the great things is that there are actually no barriers to supersonic flight today, not technologically, not in the market, and not even in regulations. 
Uh, so in many ways, we have an easier path ahead of us than, than Eric does at, at Uber. Uh, the you know, we'll certify our aircraft to the same safety standards that apply to modern subsonic aircraft. And so long as we're not flying supersonic over land, that's the big question regulatorily, um, there's no regulation that needs to be added or changed uh, to make way for supersonic. So it's, it's full steam ahead, no barriers. So you're talking, tell me, you're talking about what kind of time frame for carrying passengers? No, the mid, mid to late 2020s. Mid so to late 2020s. So our, our first aircraft, we're building it now. It's going to be in the air around the end of next year. That'll be history's first independently developed supersonic jet. And that's, think of that as a prototype for the first passenger airplane that will then be full steam ahead on and in the air, you know, mid-2020s. So will, your, will these planes have to go to the FAA uh, certification process? Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll go through the same certification process as any other passenger aircraft. So 2020 and still have to go through the FAA certification process? I understand that can take as long as five years. Yeah, so the, the uh, first prototype that's flying next year is mm -hmm. pre-certification. So that uh, doesn't have to go through the same approvals process as the first passenger aircraft. But we've been working with the FAA kind of behind the scenes for several years now on the design of the first airliner, uh, and so we're confident that this can come to market, in, in, in at least in aviation terms, in short order. Mm -hmm. And I know, I think folks, everybody loves the idea of faster, smoother, cheaper, too, um, but how do you can safety-wise, right? Mm -hmm. We have had two, I know that's a different aircraft, but I think there are still people out there who are concerned. This is a new aircraft, this is a technology that used to be there, but it also had um, safety issues. I know there was a fatal crash. Mm -hmm. So how do you convince people that this is safe? We take safety incredibly seriously, and that's one of the reasons we're starting off by building a prototype, so we can learn a lot of those important lessons before we finalize the design of the first passenger aircraft. And so not only are we meeting the same you know, safety standards that other aircraft go through, but we're going beyond them in many cases. You know, so for example, the design of Overture, which is our passenger aircraft, uh, is designed to be resistant to engine failure in flight. Uh, an engine blade cannot cause the cabin to depressurize just based on the layout of the aircraft. And so there are many cases like that where we're going above and beyond. And if you put it next to Concorde, we have to remember that aircraft was designed a half century ago, and it would not meet the safety standards that exist today. Oh, great. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but I want to thank you two gentlemen for joining us for this discussion. Um, and I want to, if you all would like to see a replay of any of the discussions, or if you want to know more about future Post Live events, um, please follow us at WashingtonPostLive.com, and we really appreciate you all joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.